This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Did you celebrate World Kindness Day? Being kind can extend your life. We'll tell you how. And why we need to pay more attention to a problem that can shorten our lives. We'll have the latest on the deadly toll of drug-resistant infections. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. A recent incident involving a widower is bringing attention to a common practice in retirement homes. 81-year-old Scotty Hamilton objected to paying rent for his late wife for one month after her death at a private Edmonton senior's residence. The company eventually waived the $7,000 fee in this case. The Zoomer advocacy group CARP says the 30-day-after-death payment is common across the country and adds they're sometimes an upside because some families are relieved they have more time to move out the belongings of a loved one. Carp applauded the home for reversing the charge. Billionaire Zoomer Guy La Liberté appeared in a French Polynesian court for growing cannabis on his private island in the South Pacific. The co-founder of Cirque du Soleil denied he was growing the plant for commercial gain and told a judge it was for strictly personal purposes. Under French law, which applies in French Polynesia, planting cannabis, even for personal or medical consumption, is illegal. Japanese researchers have another clue as to why supercentenarians, meaning people over the age of 110, live so long and so healthy. Previous studies have found these individuals were relatively immune to illnesses such as infections and cancer during their whole lifetimes. Hence the idea that they may have particularly strong immune systems. The scientists measured their circulating immune cells and found they had an excess of cytotoxic CD4 T cells. The very high level of cells that are cytotoxic, which means they can kill other cells, sometimes amounted to 80% of all T cells compared to just 10 to 20% in the control group. A husband and wife in Texas are officially the oldest living couple in the world, according to Guinness World Records. John Henderson is 106 and his wife Charlotte is 105. Next month, they'll celebrate 80 years of marriage. Both are still very healthy and John exercises every day. Ten years ago, the two moved into a senior living community. When asked the secret to a long life and a happy marriage, John said, Live life in moderation and be cordial to your spouse. Retirement is out of the question for this woman. 
Russia's oldest postwoman walks 25 miles a day on a mountain route to deliver the mail. The 83-year-old has been trekking the same route for over 50 years, six days a week. A recent profile of Ekaterina Zelayeva has captured the heart of the Internet. I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. This week, we marked World Kindness Day. Before you roll your eyes or join hands and sing Kumbaya, have a listen to the evidence of what kindness can do for you. I reached Professor Daniel Fessler at UCLA's Bedari Kindness Institute. You work in a kindness institute. Why do we need something like that? I think it's fair to say that we live in something of an unkind age. We're seeing increased polarization, um, populist political movements that tend to be xenophobic, that is afraid of outsiders, decreasing tolerance for people who are different from oneself along a variety of dimensions. And the UCLA Bedari Kindness Institute is dedicated to supporting basic and translational scientific research to try and understand kindness, the consequences of kindness for individuals and societies, and also the barriers to kindness. So you say that kindness can actually extend your life. It can. There's quite a bit of uh, biomedical research showing that as both the giver and the receiver of kindness, there are a wide variety of positive health benefits, everything from simply lowering blood pressure to being of therapeutic value in the treatment of depression and anxiety to having improved outlooks in a variety of serious medical conditions, including cancer. Being kind to others is something that feels good in the moment and is good for you as well. What kind of scientific evidence do you have for this? Professor Michelle Krask has demonstrated that this practice has benefits for individuals suffering from depression, individuals suffering from clinical anxiety. There's also work by a number of investigators at the Smell Institute at UCLA in the medical school, which shows that there are effects of practicing compassion and kindness and the mindful meditation that goes along with it on genes that influence the immune system. So there is um, selective activation and deactivation in patterns that result in decreased inflammation. And although inflammation is an important part of the initial immune response to infection, chronic inflammation is associated with a wide variety of health problems, including, for example, cardiovascular disease. Is this kind of the other side of the coin? We've, in the last few years, been hearing a lot that say loneliness can kill you. Is this a similar thing? It is, actually. Our species survives by virtue of cooperation and collaboration among individuals. So to be lonely um, is to be in an emergency state. And this is why um, both giving and receiving kindness has many of these benefits, I think, Um, because to receive kindness means that others have your back, and to be giving kindness means that you are yourself a productive member of a community of individuals who look out for each other. We hear about so-called random acts of kindness. Is kindness contagious? We have actually been able to show that 
a brief exposure as a as a third party, that is, as a witness rather than a participant in a kind interaction. Even a few minutes of watching others engage in kind actions produces a, a positive emotion in the observer, and importantly, that emotion in turn drives um, kind acts on the observer's part. Isn't that what old-fashioned people would call just, uh, you know, looking at someone who's a good example? Uh, it is. Um, certainly, we, we emulate virtuous individuals in a wide variety of, of uh, ways and in, in different domains. But there's a difference between saying that someone is a good example and we want to follow in their footsteps and being driven to do so by a powerful emotion, feeling tears in your eyes, a lump in your throat, a warm feeling in your chest, all of which our participants in our experiments describe and having the extent to which you experience that then determine how charitable you are. So this is more than just recognizing that someone else is setting a good example. It is actually a discrete mechanism in our minds which turns on when we see really virtuous pro-social behavior and drives us to behave in kind. Is unkindness equally contagious? Uh, we think it is. We have less evidence for that. Uh, the total number of experiments that we've conducted is smaller. But uh, in some of our pilot results, we have shown that a, a, an equivalent brief exposure to other people behaving in a self-interested fashion leads the individual to behave in a self-interested fashion. We think that people are constantly gauging the extent to which other people around them are pro-social, and that explains both the contagious nature of kindness and the contagious nature of unkindness. If other people around you are behaving cooperatively, then it's a good time to be cooperative, and people are inspired to be altruistic towards others in such circumstances. But if other people are behaving selfishly, then um, uh, being altruistic in that situation just makes one a mark for exploitation. Um, conversely, uh, if other people are behaving cooperatively and you behave selfishly, those other people will, at the very least, exclude you from their activities, and they may actively punish you as well. The vicious way that people troll each other on the Internet and, and call each other out these days, is that just an example of this, or is it amplified by the anonymity? What's going on there? Uh, you're right. It is both. There are decades' worth of social psychological research showing that anonymity enhances antisocial behavior, everything from children's uh, behavior on Halloween as to whether they're wearing a mask or not, to the way people drive on the roads, to, of course, the Internet being the current and most compelling example of this, where um, there are no consequences to antisocial behavior in many online contexts. Do you have, say, three very quick tips on how we can be more kind? Taking the perspective of the other is certainly an important part of kindness, and being aware of why one is reacting to other people and how, those are important steps. And then um, at the end of the day, kindness feels good, and people who practice it are happier and healthier, and I think all of us would like to be that. Daniel Fessler, thank you so much. Thank you again for your interest, and I really appreciate what you and your listeners are doing to promote kindness. That was Professor Daniel Fessler at UCLA's Bedari Kindness Institute. 
This year, drug-resistant infections killed 5,400 Canadians, and those numbers are set to rise dramatically over the next 30 years. A landmark new report predicts superbugs will kill nearly 400,000 Canadians and cost the economy $400 billion unless we are able to stop them. I reached report author Brett Finley at his office at the University of British Columbia. This is a report that a bunch of experts we got together many times over a couple of years and really had two goals in mind. What is really the level of current resistance and where are we going for the next 30 years? And so based on all this, we sort of realized that we're at about 26% resistance to antibiotics. So you got a one in four chance of going to the doctor with an infection that you can't treat it with antibiotics. And then we figure by about 2050, we'll go to about 40% resistance. And the reason that gets scary is that right now about 1 in 19 people die of resistant infection. That'll take it up to about 1 in 4. And then we also calculate the dollar costs, and it gets really extreme in that, you know, over the next 30 years, we're talking about close to $400 billion in, in GDP loss. We're talking about 300 lives lost. So the numbers get astounding. Yeah, major problem. How many lives were are now being lost because of these drug-resistant infections? Yeah, about 5,700 people die every year due to an infection that is not treatable due to the resistance. And to put that in perspective, that's just a little bit more than the people that die in the opioid crisis, and it's just a little bit less than people that die of Alzheimer's. So it's, it's a large, you know, large, large number, and it's only getting bigger. I remember a few years ago, maybe it was as, as much as 10 years ago, when there was a lot of focus on these drug-resistant infections, largely in hospitals, and, and suddenly we haven't heard very much about it for years. It's been there. They've just been slowly creeping up. We, have, do a lot, we do have a lot of infection and prevention control in the hospital settings, but the other problem is it's world, worldwide. So if someone travels to another country where there's resistant organisms, they bring them home, then we have them here, and that's happened several times in Canada. And it's, 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 it's kind of like climate change, you know, one of these slow-moving things that, yeah, I mean, you know, the weather hasn't changed. I can remember this week sort of thing, but it's coming, and we know it's coming. And it's going to affect everyone by the time it really hits us hard. Why would there be such a big increase from 26% to 40% of infections being drug-resistant? There's been a continual creep. I mean, when they first introduced antibiotics, we predicted there'd be resistance, and there was, and then... Basically, the more you use antibiotics, the more the, they become resistant, the more the resistant levels increase. So we did model both at current rates and 40%, and just for the fun of it, 100%, but we'll never reach that. And um, this is a, basically based on all our estimates of what we've seen, where we think we're going. That's why we think we'll get to about 40%. This report came out at the same time as a similar report in the United States by the Centers for Disease Control, which said that drug-resistant germs there kill about 35,000 people a year and that someone gets a drug-resistant infection every 11 seconds and every 15 minutes someone dies. So is the situation there worse than it is here? No, actually, so you do the math, you divide by 10 for Canon, it's pretty similar. Um, they came up with very similar numbers that we had. Uh-huh, and is that what you expected? Well, it's nice to see our, our, we were being confirmed by what the states are seeing because we have similar levels of resistance. I mean, the G7 level of resistance on average is about 30%. Um, so the, the, the deaths were, were similar to the, we see 5,700 per year in Canada, and it's one-tenth of the state size, and we see about 300,000 resistant infections a year in Canada. So, yeah, the numbers, numbers are pretty similar. 
antibiotics can fight an infection that's bacterial as opposed to a viral infection, right? So when we say antibiotics, the most time we are probably saying antibacterials. So there are antivirals and antifungals, the other types. Most commonly used ones, you go to the doctor, you have an infection, it's usually bacterial, and they usually take a antimicrobial, which is actually an antibacterial. So things like penicillin, those are antibacterial. There are antiviral um, drugs, but they're not as common, and we don't see the resistance just because genetically they're different that we see with the bacteria. So we're mainly talking about bacteria. For years, we've been told as patients, if you get antibiotics, you have to finish them. And recently, we've been told, well, maybe you don't have to finish them. Does that have any impact on drug resistance? Yeah, the thought was if you, let's say, you're supposed to take it for 10 days, you take it for five, you drop the load, but then you quit taking it. Well, then you haven't killed them all off, and so the ones living could there'd be residual amounts of antibiotics. They could have a lower level and work on developing resistance to them. What, what's really, that's not really held out so much. What's really held out now is hit them hard and hit them fast. You want to kill them rapidly. And so, you know, take the big doses. In shorter time periods, you don't have to take them as long. That's also good because it doesn't release as much into the environment. So you can see, though, if you quit taking them partway through and there's still some microbes living, as the antibiotic is slowly cleared from your system, it will go through a concentration that the microbes might be able to still live through it and develop resistance. So that's the concern there. When they work, they're, they're life-saving miracles. You know, you normally die of this infection. They are going to work, but don't use them from everything. Um, in many countries, you don't even need a prescription. You can buy them along with your milk as part of the groceries type thing, which is not good. You know, and if a pediatrician or some doctor says, well, let's wait a day or two before we start these antibiotics, trust them, and we try that. And really, we need to respect them. They're a fabulous thing, but we've overused them. As a result, it's causing all these problems. That was Brett Finley of the University of British Columbia. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.